In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brad McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast site. Something we all take for granted until it stops working the way it's supposed to. While most of us will only have to deal with the annoyances of less than 20-20 vision, my guest today went from fully sighted to completely blind when he was a teenager. While terrifying and debilitating at first, he learned that losing his ability to see the physical world actually allowed him to see reality from a sharper perspective. His name is Isaac Litsky, and his new book is Eyes Wide Open, Overcoming Obstacles and Recognizing Opportunities in a World That Can't See Clearly. And today on the show, Isaac and I discussed how he went blind and his initial reaction to losing his sight. We then dig into the insights he gained about resilience, humility, and Theodore Roosevelt's man in the arena that allowed him to move forward in life. Among his accomplishments since going blind are graduating from Harvard Law, clerking to the U.S. Supreme Court, working at a high-powered law firm in New York City, and then turning around a struggling construction business that now earns over $70 million a year in revenue. Oh, and while he was doing all that, he was also busy being the dad of triplets. If you feel like your ability to move forward in life is hamstring by limitations or you struggle with being resilient to setbacks both big and small, Isaac is going to show you that it's all in your mind and what you can do to see things as they really are. After the show is over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Litsky. Isaac Litsky, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you just published a book called Eyes Wide Open, Overcoming Obstacles and Recognizing Opportunities in a World That Can't See Clearly. And I got to say, it's one of the most inspiring yet grounded books I've read in a long time. It's all about your experience of starting going blind as a teenager and learning how to thrive. I wouldn't say in spite of, but also because of your blindness, taking that into account. And we can talk about that here in a bit. And you've also had a really interesting career spanning entrepreneurship and the legal career. But before we get to your adult career and before we get to you going blind, we got to talk about, for nostalgia's sake, your stint as a child actor. Because I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to the show seen you on this short-lived show that happened in the 90s. So can you talk a little about your stint as a child actor? Sure. So I grew up acting. I did a diaper commercial when I was about six months old, and it was pretty much all downhill from there. So I did, you know, maybe 100 to 150 commercials growing up, some big parts and some very small things, some small parts and some big things. And then my, uh, my lucky break, so to speak, was when I was cast as the role of Weasel Wiesel on NBC's sitcom Saved by the Bell, the new class. So I moved out to Los Angeles at the age of 13 to star on that sitcom. And uh, it was it was quite quite an experience. It was only it lasted a season, right, or two seasons? The show I only lasted a season on the show. I think the show went on three or four seasons. I'm not not entirely certain. Gotcha. Well, looking back on that experience as an adult, are there any takeaways? Like, did you see something that was sort of like, did you learn any life lessons from that, or about this whole idea about seeing things clearly that you write about in your book? Were there any takeaways you took from that experience being weasel on Saved by the Bell, the new class? Sure. So, you know, I was diagnosed with my blinding disease also when I was 13. So right around the time that I moved out to L.A. to do the show. So I had kind of a lot 
going on uh, in my world and in, and in my mind, frankly, um, in those times. So I think that the sort of a juxtaposition of those two things going on really sort of highlighted for me, emphasized for me, um, the sort of odd character of, you know, celebrity or quasi celebrity and the tendency in that industry out there to focus on, you know, appearances and what others think about you and what success should look like and, and all that. And it, it seemed to me, it's almost a cautionary tale. It seemed to me a reminder that uh, I should live my life really more focused on what was important to me and what had value, you know, for me. Right. I mean, you talk about in that experience, I remember it stuck out to me was that you were like instantly famous from the get go. Cause like they announced the show, the cast live, or they did something special for it. And you were on these teen beat magazines all over the place. And you instantly gained this following without even doing the show yet like people knew who you were and they had you had a fan base that's exactly right so the, the original show saved by the bell was wildly popular you know those actors kind of grew up and went off to do you know a show called save the Bell, like college years or left the show or whatever and so with the saturday morning time slot they sort of basically did a redo of the show with you know with a new class which i was on and yeah because of the popularity of the original show they did this nationwide search and it was all publicized and we did you know weeks of publicity photos and the, you know public appearances and uh, fan mail and, and all sorts of stuff before we had taped a, you know, a minute of the show. It was very strange. Yeah, it is very strange. We can get to the whole idea about appearances over reality here in a bit. So you mentioned at 13, you found out you had this degenerative disease that would cause you to go blind. So what exactly caused you to go blind and, and how did it progress to where to the point you are now where you, you're blind? Sure. So I have a disease called retinitis pigmentosa or RP. What RP does is it causes a sort of slow deterioration of your photoreceptor cells. So if you, if you picture like a jumbotron screen in an arena and imagine like sort of all the you know, millions of bulbs that you know, make up the image on that screen, it's kind of like the back of your eye. The retina has these photoreceptor cells that you know, respond to light and uh, produce this little biological magic. Uh, imagine you're watching my life kind of as a movie on that screen and the bulbs start to randomly break over time. That's what it was like for me. So, you know, at first you might not even notice that it can be a little bit annoying. Parts of the screen get worse than others. And depending on what you're looking at and where it falls on the screen, it might, the image might make sense to you or not make sense. So sight sort of gradually went from, you know, the, the, the illusion of sight is this sort of, you know, objective reality, the sort of universal truth that's out there. It's sort of passive. And, you know, we even say seeing is believing, right? That's kind of how we experience sight. That illusion, you know, really was sort of, you know, shattered for me in a remarkable way. And I literally saw firsthand that sight is this creation of the mind that is personal, that is virtual, that involves far more than just information from the eyes. And that in an interesting way, the, the disease was almost kind of part of the cure. I mean, I literally saw, you know, the power we have to create a reality that we then, you know, experience, live, feel as, as truth, as something beyond our control. Uh, and that insight is really what ultimately brought me, you know, tremendous joy and fulfillment and success in my life. And it's why I think that going blind was really one of the best things that ever happened to me at the end of the day. That's amazing. But before you got to that insight, what was your initial reaction when you learned as a you know, 13 year old boy that you were going blind? You know, at first I was terrified. And I knew that blindness was going to ruin my life. I didn't think it. I knew it. You know, I knew that I was not going to be independent, that I would cease to, you know, achieve. And I would, you know, I was certain I was going to live an unremarkable life, kind of small and sad and 
probably alone. I didn't think any woman would love or respect me because I wasn't going to love or respect myself and sort of on and on and on and on. And, you know, these were lies. I mean, these were the, these were fictions born of my fear, but I believed them. They were my reality, you know, until I learned to, to see through them. And, you know, we all, all of us, you know, confront fears. Um, and all of us sort of awfulize it's a term psychologists use. I love it. I think it's, it's a perfect term. The really pernicious thing about fear is, you know, like I was saying, we, you know, we can experience our fears as truth and then they often become self-fulfilling. They perpetuate themselves precisely because we believe them. Yeah. I've experienced that awfulizing firsthand. Like you, I went to law school and I remember after exams, I would awfulize. I would get done and I would do the postmortem in my head and think, oh my gosh, I missed that issue in the essay. And because I missed that issue, I'm going to make a D. And because I made a D, I'm not going to get a law review. And because I don't get a law review, I'm not going to like get a law firm job and my life will be ruined. It felt real, but it's not real. It's not real, but it feels so real. And you know, the sort of remarkable moment in my life in the development of kind of this, this vision that I was blessed with is really when I was able to make the connection between the way we experience the sort of fundamental contradiction between sight being sort of a creation of our own making, and yet we feel it as sort of truth, right? We create our own reality and believe it. And I was able to kind of make the connection between that and the way I was experiencing my fears. And that was really an aha moment and led me to think, well, well wait a minute, you know, what are all the other ways in, in my life, in our lives, that we all are, you know, really shaping our lives without necessarily knowing it. And the truth of the matter is we're doing it every moment. I mean, literally all day long, every moment, whether we understand it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, um, we are choosing who we want to be and how we want to live our lives in every single moment. Um, you know, that was such an empowering and liberating uh, realization for me that, you know, again, it's, it's, it's turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. There was this point you made in your section about, you know, these fears, this awfulizing that I thought was counterintuitive, but it, it just made a lot of sense to me is when you and your family first learned that you, and I guess your siblings also had this disease as well, or some of them. Yes. Two of my three older sisters have the disease. Right. Well, you, you all threw yourselves into finding a cure. Like you and your mom started a foundation to raise money for research, to find a cure for this. And you did fundraisers and things like that. But you write in the book that this quest to find a cure you were just playing into the hands of your fear of blindness, which seems counterintuitive because you're thinking, okay, you're actually taking action. Like you're facing your fear by trying to take it head on, um, by trying to find a cure and raise money for it. But how would you say that that quest was playing in the hands of your, your fear? Yeah, you know, our fears can perpetuate themselves by kind of uh, keeping us on the sideline, right? The, the way fear's spell remains unbroken is by kind of, tricking us into playing our own part. And often, you know, that happens with sort of we manifest for ourselves sort of perceived heroes and villains and people or forces or circumstances that we, you know, we believe have control over our fate and we kind of outsource our destiny. So, you know, my heroes were these research scientists, you know, my villain was blindness. And, you know, I thought, as you said, I thought I was sort of proactively sort of charging, you know, forward and doing something productive about my disease and the fight to cure it. And in reality, I was really playing into this narrative of fear, of my fears, that blindness was this awful fate, this death sentence, right? I, the, like these scientists just had to save me. I had to find this Hollywood ending 
you know, where I would, you know, get the cure right, you know, just in the nick of time, so to speak. I don't regret for a second, you know, by the way, my efforts on behalf of the research community, and I would very much love for them to be successful in curing the disease. However, you know, I really, I really was playing right into the hands of my fears by, um, by committing myself to, you know, to cheer on these heroes of mine and fight against the villain. And, and meanwhile, where did that leave me day in and day out? You know, it left me not, not doing a darn thing to, to learn about going blind or being blind or, or to, you know, take, take control of my life. So you talk about you had this aha moment. What was that moment? What, like, was there a specific moment you can remember where you, you stopped running away from your fear of blindness? You stopped seen it as the villain and sort of just let it go and try to embrace it? Absolutely. So uh, in my late teens, early 20s, I went to visit with an occupational uh, therapist, a low vision rehabilitation specialist, someone who works with folks who are losing their sight or have lost their sight. I, at this time, was very much living this sort of race against time and blindness as a villain and science as my heroes. And I showed up kind of assuming that we were going to be sort of talking about that narrative, right? Blindness and this awful fade and doom and gloom. And uh, Chris, her name was Chris. She wanted to talk about specific, you know, concrete, actual solution for my everyday life. So, you know, I walked in the door. She wants to talk about, do I use a cane? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, no, I don't use a cane. I mean, I, you know, I see too well to use a cane. And she says, well, do you bump into things? And, and I'm getting frustrated because I, like, I want her to understand how little I care about bumping into things, right? I'm thinking, you know, bumping into things is not my problem, right? The cane is a, was like an arbitrary detail here, right? Like, I can handle now. Uh, I can handle today. You know, the problem is I'm losing my sight and there's nothing I can do about it. You know, one thing led to another, but there was this moment when she said to me, you know, Isaac, um, if you use the cane, you would bump into things less and you would hurt yourself less. It sounds like such an obvious point. It is an obvious point. But for me, that was really the, the sort of epiphany moment where I just, it just hit me that everything I thought I knew about going blind or being blind was the lies of my fears. And worse, I hadn't done anything to learn about going blind or being blind. Uh, so in essence, I was choosing uh, choosing to believe and choosing to live, you know, this awful, you know, doom and gloom, terrifying life that hit me hard to realize that it was, you know, it was a choice I was making. I wasn't aware of it, but it was a choice that I was making. And, and it really hit me, you know, in hard in her office that day that I, I'm going to make some better choices for myself and I'm going to take control of my life. And so besides the cane, she introduced things like, I guess, text readings. I guess at that point you were like, had to like make your screen really big on your computer to read text, but now they had software to help that read things to you, right? Yeah. I mean, it was awesome. Uh, you know, when we can, uh, when we can stop focusing on, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the doom and gloom scenarios and when we can, you know, fo you know, take discrete, specific challenges and look for solutions. There's just no end to, you know, what we can accomplish and how we can make our lives better. So yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The cane was one thing, you know, she taught me about screen reading software, which is software that I use now to interact with my computer, you know, like voiceover on Apple products or something people might be familiar with or whatever. It's amazing. I can do anything with my computer or iPhone or iGadget that, you know, that a sighted person wants to do. She taught me about that. She taught me about a technique called sighted guide where you can use to walk with a sighted person naturally and safely, right? Where they can kind of get really great information from them about kind of what's going on. 
She taught me about ways to organize my shoes and my clothing so I could, you know, pick out what I wanted to wear and on and on and on. And, you know, like I said, I mean, it's not easy. It takes a lot of effort. It takes discipline. You know, it takes commitment. But the choice is ours to confront the real, true, discrete problems or, or challenges that we face, uh, as opposed to sort of staying off on the sideline in this sort of fantasy of our fear. That whole insight was really powerful to me because I think all of us, I mean, I'm not be going blind, but we have other things that we see as a constraint. And we think our lives would be better if we can just get rid of that constraint. And maybe, yeah, it would be easier. But instead of spending all that energy trying to tear down this constraint that might be impossible to get rid of, it's better just to embrace it and try to work within those constraints that you have. There's no doubt. I mean, every single person has challenges, has fears, has struggles in their lives. You know, loss of a job, uh, loss of a you know, ending of a relationship, loss of a spell, whatever it is. And um, we all confront this stuff. And and then you know, beyond beyond sort of the fear or, or or crisis, you know, we all make self-limiting assumptions about ourselves, right? We tell ourselves what's what's wrong with us. You know, we tell ourselves what other people think about us, and we really have no idea. We think we have, you know, uh, we don't necessarily embrace and appreciate our strengths, but we certainly, you know, perceive weaknesses in ourselves. And we think we understand the role of luck in our lives and on and on and on. And all these things, as you say, are really within our control, you know, to really look at, to explore with awareness and accountability and, you know, shape the lives we want. I mean, if you think of the circumstances that people have confronted, I, I, I like to say that always you'll find people who have done far more with far less and been far happier doing it. Right. I mean, you, you hear stories of, you know, concentration camp survivors and, you know, POWs that spend years in the most, you know, unimaginable conditions, you know, and yet there's always examples of people who thrive and transcend and even find joy and meaning in, in circumstances in which, you know, you'd think those things could not possibly exist. So, I mean, if that's true and it is true, it, it can't be the circumstances we confront that dictates the quality of the life we live. Uh, it just can't be. It, it, how those circumstances manifest themselves in our reality, in our lives, is within our control. It's very existential. I'm liking this a lot. <laughs> You're kind. I'm passionate about it. I mean, I, you know, we, we have this awesome power. We really do to shape the lives we live. And it's also our responsibility. You know, I wrote the book because I really want other people to see what I see. It's brought me to a great life. I want my kids to read the book, you know, when they get a little older too. All right, so let's talk about the great life you've had after you had that aha moment. Let's talk about your first tech startup you started right out of college. So I think there's some interesting insights from that as well. So you started a tech company right out of college, right? How did that go? And what lessons did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so I started a internet advertising technology business with my brother-in-law in June of 1999. I was, I was 19 years old and I graduated from Harvard with a degree in math and computer science. And, you know, it was right at the height of the internet craze. And we thought, you know, it, you know, it's our turn, giddy up. So we started this business and very quickly, you know, found a fancy loft space in Silicon Alley in Manhattan and attracted some venture capital and started hiring like crazy. And then the bubble burst, so to speak, violently. And the, the term sheet, I, I said we, we secured capital. We didn't secure capital. We, we, we had a term sheet. We had an signed letter of intent. Well, that was pulled. Uh, because the world fell apart. And suddenly we were broke and not paying ourselves and had to figure out a way to actually make money, right? It wasn't about, you know, eyeballs and volume and an ad impression. You know, like we needed actual dollars. And ultimately, I, you know, I think that's the reason the company survived. 
because instead of making the same mistakes that a lot of folks made in the industry of continuing to, you know, raise exorbitant amounts of money and spend it on, you know, marketing and craziness and not really actually focus on a business model, we had to, you know, roll up our sleeves and focus on making some money. It was a real rough couple years, but ultimately we turned it around and we did raise some venture financing. You know, we hired our own bosses at that point and it became kind of like a real job, which I was never looking for. So I, I split after a couple of years to go back to Harvard for law school. And didn't it end up selling and like you didn't make any money on that deal, right? Like people thought like you made millions of dollars, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Years later, years later, um, the business sold for $230 million. A lot of folks in my life assumed that I was, you know, very rich when in fact, uh, at that point, I no longer had any equity interest in the business. It's a, it's a long and complicated story, but basically, uh, I didn't have, I, I didn't make a penny off. Of was it. that tough? Like thinking like, Oh, I missed out on that. Like that. Do you have like feel that loss aversion or were you just like, ah, whatever? Uh, no, I mean, I, it wasn't, it wasn't mine to lose. I mean, I, you know, I made all the decisions that I made along the way and, and, you know, it, I was really pleased that the company, you know, found some success and I was pleased for the folks who were still there. You can't really lose something you never had, you know, and frankly, by that point I was doing my own thing. You know, I think it was living in DC, either clerking at the Supreme court or practicing law for the justice department and, you know, doing my so thing. Yeah, you went on to Harvard law, graduated, you clerked for uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, correct? Yep. which is fantastic, phenomenal. A lot of law students aspire to that. What happened after your clerkship at the Supreme Court? So I was blessed to even, even before I got to court, I had this awesome job. I worked for the Justice Department and I litigated appeals on behalf of the U.S. in the federal appellate courts. So you know, I'm a year out of law school and I get to brief and argue my own appeal. And then kind of, I wouldn't say lifelong dream, but certainly a very long-standing dream of mine was to clerk at the court. I would, I'm fascinated by the Supreme Court and Anyway, I really wanted to do it. So I realized that dream. And then I kind of do the sort of obvious thing, I guess, or, you know, the, the easiest thing, you know, frankly, and, and, and took a big, you know, huge signing bonus from a big international law firm and got the fancy job and office and, and all that. And I was, I was miserable. Now, I want to be crystal clear. There are, you know, there are plenty of folks who can and do find value in practicing law and find success in it or meaning or, you know, enjoy it. And, and they're built to do it. And that's great. I have no problem with that. The problem is I'm not one of those people. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. So I uh, made a, uh, I guess an unconventional move and basically abandoned my legal career to buying a small residential construction company in Orlando, Florida. My wife and I moved with our then infant triplets. They were maybe, what were they, like six months old? We moved from an apartment in Manhattan to a, a home in Orlando, Florida. Well, I think that's an important point to make, uh, The you know, this, going along with this idea of being able to see clearly, right? I think a lot of people in your situation, they would have done the exact same thing. If they just got done with the Supreme Court, of course, that's what you would do, is you would go to a big firm. Mm-hmm. Because you think that's like, that's, that's right. Right. And the money's great. Right. It's prestige, it's money, it provides a comfortable living. But yeah, you're right. There's Some people are made for it, but there's a lot of people who aren't made for that sort of life. And realizing that and having the courage to shift course, I mean, that that takes a lot of you know, chutzpah to do that. Um, you, know, you have to see clearly. Yeah, I mean... Or am I wrong? Did, did it not take a lot of chutzpah? Like you just no, like, you did. knew what you had to do and you did it. No, no, it certainly did. It was not an easy decision to make, but at the core of uh, living and leading eyes wide open is an uncompromising, almost a brutal honesty with yourself 
and introspection and certainty about what has meaning to you, what has value to you, what's, what your definition of success is. I mean, folks uh, so often labor to meet someone else's definition of success or without any, any sort of goal or, or definition of success in mind to begin with. And that's just such a shame. So, you know, I, I really sort of, I try to put my money where my mouth is and, you know, I have this vision, I have these ideas about how I want to live my life and, you know, sitting there at my desk in the, you know, skyscraper right off Bryant Park in Manhattan, I, you know, I, there was no escaping the fact that I was unhappy and I didn't like what I was doing and I couldn't come up with a good reason to keep well, doing and it. And so going on this theme of facing constraints instead of running away from them and embracing them, um, you bought this construction company in Orlando, but come to find out it was sort of a limit of a business. It had a lot of work you had to do in order to make it profitable. So, I mean, he talked just sort of summarize the trials you and your partner went through to turn this business around. Sure. So my college roommate and, and closest uh, friend, Zach, and I decided to partner up on this deal. He would keep his fancy day job in the world of finance, but he'd help me you know, look for the business and pay for it. And, uh, and I'd leave behind my fancy day job and run it. You know, so we, we spent five months looking at businesses all over. It was my sort of you know, primary focus. He was certainly very involved too, but, you know, we found this business and meticulously analyzed, you know, the financial data. And we thought, look, this company's, you know, not breaking any records by way of success, but it's getting along. It's kind of humming along. It's a lifestyle business. And we got very excited about our vision for, you know, what we could turn this company into and kind of change the value proposition and all that kind of stuff. So what could go wrong, right? Two Harvard guys are going to buy a construction company in, in Orlando. Well, about three months in, you know, we realized that uh, all that data we had, you know, modeled was really just nonsense. It was sort of garbage in, garbage out. In actuality, nobody really had any idea what was going on with the business. Uh, really, frankly, you didn't even necessarily know what was going on on a job-by-job basis, you know, whether you're making or losing money on a project. And that turns out to not be a very good way to run your business. So we found out pretty early on that we were in dire straits and the company was basically hemorrhaging money and it looked like we were going to lose everything. My wife and I uh, uh, talked about, I'd probably have to go through bankruptcy and we worried whether a law firm would be willing to hire me after a bankruptcy. It's a tricky thing to have a big law firm hire a, bank, uh, a bankrupt lawyer or whatever, but uh, we even talked with her father and her mom about not moving in with them if it came to it with our now, you know, year old triplets. So those, that was, those were some really dark times and very challenging. And in the midst of all this, my mom kind of reveals that she's been squirreling away, you know, cash over 40 years. I do. I literally mean physical cash. She herself is a Cuban immigrant and her father had to start over from scratch, you know, several times in life. So, you know, he taught her to, to save for that rainy day. And for him, you know, banks come and go, Government's coming, go, you save cash. So anyway, in the middle of all this, my mom kind of reveals she's got 350 grand in cash. You know, she's just absolutely convinced that I should take it and use it to save my dying business. So <laughs> that led to uh, a few days of real soul searching and, and, and analyzing the situation and deciding, you know, whether I could possibly take this money. But I eventually, I did so. And with her sort of, you know, very, very, very urgently needed infusion of capital, we were able to turn the business around and it took years and it took a, a phenomenal team of very dedicated people. But, you know, today the business has grown to more than 10 times the size it was when we bought it and, and it's profitable and it's, 
just an excellent company. I'm extremely proud That's of. That's fantastic. Again, it's that whole idea you talked about earlier about you know vision being virtual, right? You saw these numbers from this business and you thought they were good. You had this image in your head like, oh yeah, this is a slam dunk. But uh, that wasn't the reality. No, and I had, I mean, that's a very insightful point. And, you know, I, <laughs> looking back, I had absolutely no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no idea. But, you know, I was sure eager to, to learn, and I did. And that's life, right? Life is constant growth. It's constant improvement. It's constant momentum. That's really the joy. Yeah, I think this is a nice segue. You have this chapter in the book. You devote to one of my favorite speeches, Theodore Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech. Yes. Some, yeah, we're big fans of TR over here at The Art of Manliness for obvious reasons. Okay, me too. I love it. Fantastic. But you kind of go through his speech and, and draw some insights about it from your own experience. And I thought it was interesting that you, you talk about how ideals can be the tools of that metaphorical critic. How so? That's, again, that's counterintuitive. You think ideals are great, but the critic can actually turn those against you. Yeah, so the critic, the critic in our mind is a nasty voice, man, and it's quick to pass judgment, tell us what we can't do, tell us what other people are thinking about us. Yeah, like you said, so the, the critic idealizes, the critic sort of presents this lofty view of the world or of our endeavors, kind of soaring high above it all, you know, where the paths of progress down below are too small to see. The rate of progress is, you know, appears to be glacially slow. You know, I'm just the sort of the towering magnitude of, of our aspirations is just, is just overwhelming. And the critic, you know, often will will keep us off the stage, will keep us from even, you know, from even trying by virtue of this, of this sort of pernicious perspective. You know, for the, for the critic, perfection is, is the only standard. As we all know, perfection is impossible. Uh, so the, you know, the critic in our mind conveniently, um, you know, guarantees our failure, right? Foreordain, foreordains our failure. Oh, we talked earlier about definitions of success. Well, I mean, one of the things the critic does is it's almost like a, you know, a sleight of hand wizard, right? Like, you know, a three card Monty game where the other uh, critic in our head will swap out someone else's definition of success for our own and we won't even notice it. And yeah, it's a, it's a pernicious thing. Yeah, I love how you talked about too in the book that quote unquote tough love is another tool of the critic, you know, just telling you, oh, you know, look, here's, here's, the, here's the scoop here. I'm going to lay it to you straight. You should just give up. You know, this is not going to happen for you. Yep, do the, do the sensible thing, do the practical thing, do the responsible thing, just kind of surrender gracefully. Right. And that could have happened all throughout your life with the blindness or with the business. Uh, could have been, you know what, just, just give up, you know, move on to something else. No doubt. We all confront those moments all the time in our lives, big and small too. You know, sometimes those small things don't turn out to be that small. Yeah. And so instead of ideals, what should the strong man, what should the strong man in that speech embrace? Is it just day-to-day -day action? Yeah, the strong man's focus is the moment, is now. Strong man's focus is the next step, right? And he'll glance up at the, the peak of the mountain from time to time casually, right? But his, his focus is the next grip, right? The next pull. The strong man has absolutely no, no use for perfection, right? The strong man values effort and growth. So for the strong man, success comes in actually striving, toward a worthy pursuit. Now, the remarkable thing is that we are all born strong men. That's in our nature, it's in our DNA, it's at our core. You know, for me, that's the profound truth in, in Nietzsche's line, right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's true. 
You know, every single moment of our lives can yield insight, knowledge, and, and, and wisdom. It's a beautiful thing when you can keep your focus in the moment and, and harness your strength within and quiet that internal critic and ignore the sort of circus of noise that that critic choreographs. That's where we kind of get into that. You know, some psychologists call it flow, I guess, that sort of heightened state of of really being in the moment. And that's just I, I just, just pure oxygen. I, I love that. it. Um, so another theme throughout your book is trying to figure out one of the challenges of life is trying to suss out what is determined by luck and what is determined by skill. I think oftentimes we think our skill or the breaks we've gotten have been attributed to our skill, but it's actually luck. Or sometimes we think the they're attributed to luck, but it's actually skill, right? You devote this whole chapter talking about poker. You're a poker player. What can poker teach us about trying to figure out what the difference between skill and luck is and why is that important? Oh, that's, uh, that's a great question. So, you know, poker can teach us everything about luck in life, I think. I mean, poker, so I love No Limit Hold'em. It's a game I like to play. It's a very pure form of poker. And if you look at that game and you look at a single hand and you said, is this a game of luck or a game of skill? If your perspective is a single hand, it's pretty easy to conclude it's a game of luck. If, however, you looked at folks who play poker professionally or, or folks who are passionate about it and played a lot and, and play, you know, tens of thousands of hands over you know, years of their lives. There's just no question that poker is a game of skill. It, it absolutely is a game of skill and you can be better at it. You can be worse at it. The same, you know, the people who are, are, are great at it tend to, you know, over time achieve better results and, and yada, yada. But, you know, it's, again, it's about that perspective of how you look at the game. And I think the same is true in life. You know, Thomas Jefferson, the same as for, or, well, the quotes attributed to him, who knows if he actually said it, but something to the effect of, I'm a big fan of luck. And I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. And it's just so true. I mean, life is about the, the strategy, the play of game, the sort of the tactics that will sort of optimize your performance over time. And it's not about any one hand. And it's very hard to see that when you have, for example, a bad beat, right? In poker, a bad beat is, well, you know, you're the 10 to 1 favorite to win the hand. Well, you know, one out of 10 times, you're going to lose. That card that's not supposed to, you know, get flipped over at the end, it's going to be that card and you're going to lose. Does it mean you played the hand wrong? No, you played it perfectly. It's just the one in 10 shot that, that you lost. And that can be very hard to see. We beat ourselves up all the time or decisions that we made that were great decisions for us in the moment at the time we made them, but they didn't pan out. And that's just life. Similarly, it can be just as dangerous to get hot, to get on a roll, right? Playing, playing a hold of you, you win a couple big hands, maybe a, you loosen up your play and, you know, you pick up a pot and you shouldn't have and you kind of feel like luck's on your side, quote unquote. You know, a, a big pile of chips can get you into a big pile of trouble. So, you know, for me, I, I love poker as a sort of metaphor for life and uh, how we tend to oversimplify this distinction between good luck and bad luck and, and, and you know, frankly, even think that that distinction, you know, has meaning. It's kind of a meaningless thing to me. You know, and then also really grossly tend to underestimate the extent to which we do control events or circumstances in our lives. Again, we think there's a sort of bright line, things within our control, things that aren't in our control. And it's really, it's a gray line. It's nebulous. There's a lot of uh, subtlety there. And for the most part, a lot more is in our control than we than we realize. Fantastic. Well, Isaac, this has been a great conversation. There's a lot more we could probably get into. We'll let folks go get the book to get those insights. Where can people learn more about your work? Sure. Thanks a lot. So uh, the easiest place to go is probably just my website, which is my last name, Litsky, L as in Larry, I, D as in David, S as in Sam, K-Y, dot com. 
If you go there, there's information on the book. I have a blog. There's a link to my TED Talk and all sorts of stuff. Now, the one thing I'm going to ask, though, is if, if you are interested and this you know, does make a connection and you read about this stuff, please let me know what you think. You can do it on my website. And I, you know, this is a passion project for me, and I genuinely read every every submission I get, and I think about it, and I want to know what you think. So please do let me know. Isaac Litsky, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Me too. Thank you. My guest here is Isaac Lidsky. He's the author of the book, Eyes Wide Open. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at litsky.com. Be sure to check out his TED Talk. It's called, What Reality Are You Creating for Yourself? It's really good. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Litsky, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper in this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, have gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it. Take a minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.